This is Wrestling with your host, Isaac Scanlon. Hey everyone, how's it going? Welcome to this special episode of Wrestling. I know it's been a hot minute between being on vacation and getting COVID. I've been out of the loop for a while, but I'm all good to go now and I'm excited to bring this episode to you. It'll it'll just be me today, but there will be I got some more special guests coming up. So you got that to look forward to. Meanwhile, the other day, I went out and I saw Thor Love and Thunder. And I knew from the opening scene I had to make an episode about it. I'd already made my Spider-Man episode, and I thought I'd give this one a whirl too. This movie is about gods after all, so it was bound to have lots of rich theological themes. Before we get started, just want to throw out a disclaimer that I will at times being the characters, whether gods or human, to Christ. I obviously understand the gods in Thor are different from Christ in several key ways, but bear with me as I draw parallels. Also forgive me if I'm not super literate about the Thor universe or Norse mythology. And finally, this episode will be loaded with spoilers, so pause this and go see the movie if you want to avoid that. Alright, let's get to it. I was all over the place about this movie, particularly about the movie's antagonist, Gore the God Butcher. Like the name suggests, he wants to kill all gods. And I was conflicted because, on the one hand, Gore appears to be a direct embodiment of Satan. His mission is to destroy the gods, to push them off of their throne, that he feels have forsaken him. But there were other times I thought, this villain is perfectly just in his quest. I've thought deeply about this movie, and I'm excited to bring my thoughts to you. Let's start with the opening scene. The man who will eventually become the, man anta- the main antagonist of the film, Gore the God Butcher, is traversing the desert with his daughter. And this desert, like many deserts, is hot and dry. Tragically, Gore's daughter dies in his arms of thirst. And it appears that Gore will suffer the same fate until he suddenly sees an oasis. Maybe it's just a hallucination, but he rushes into the oasis, and he gorges himself with water. Once he does that, he sees some fruit lying on the ground. And as he's eating, a voice reprimands him for eating the fruit of the gods. Gore looks up, and he sees the god to whom he has committed his love and allegiance. And this traveler, who has lost so much, he profusely apologizes for eating the god's fruit, And then he explains that he had lost not only his daughter, but everyone he loves. Apparently his entire village had been been destroyed by a famine or something. And he has only one request. He doesn't demand his daughter back or any of his people. All Gore asks for is assurance that his departed loved ones are being rewarded in the afterlife for their piety, as this god has apparently promised. 
It is as though Gore understands the suffering of this life does not compare to the weight of glory that is to be revealed in the afterlife. But the god mocks him and announces there is no afterlife. All of Gore's piety was for naught. There was no purpose to any of it. Well, you can imagine how the god responds to this. He does not take very kindly to it. He grabs Gore by the throat and it looks like he's about to squeeze the life right out of him. But fortunately for the Gore, for, <laughs> not the Gore, fortunately for Gore, or perhaps unfortunately as you'll see later, the God Slayer sword is there. The previous God Slayer had this sword and this is the only thing you can use to kill the gods. But this god who was strangling Gore had slain the last holder of the sword. With Gore's last ounce of strength, he plunges the sword into the tyrannical god's throat. And he's saved. And at this point in the movie, I'm 100% on board with Gore. He, he did nothing wrong at this point. He, he killed in self-defense. I mean, it was... It was either Gore or this god, so I'm thinking, what else is he supposed to do? And I'm also thinking, what a great refutation of paganism. This is what happens to gods that break their promises, and also gods that are so weak that they allow themselves to be killed by a measly sword. The sword, however, has a dark side. It affects Gore the way that the Ring of Power affected Gollum. This is what turned Gore into the new God Butcher. It's as though the will of the sword has possessed Gore and, and he becomes physically deformed and obsessed with power and he will not be satisfied until he has killed or, if you will, butchered all of the gods. He's not satisfied with avenging the god who took his daughter and did not provide the promised reward in the afterlife. He is now going to destroy all gods. So at this point, this is where you could argue the god butcher resembles Satan, rather than a penitent idolater who slayed his idol upon realizing its empty promises. The God Butcher is still perfectly clear about his motives. In the later scenes, he tells the kidnapped children, I went to the gods for help, and what did they do? Nothing. When I heard this, this really gave me pause, because I could not help but think of a common argument that atheists make, the problem of unanswered prayer. Some might argue that the God who coldly refused the God Butcher's request for eternal reward resembles the one true God, who does not always answer our prayers as we wish. This is similar to the professor in God's Not Dead. That's why he became an avowed atheist, because God never answered his prayers, so he uh, turned against him. And, and this made me think, could it be that God is this domineering bully as the new atheists claim and that Satan has been right this entire time? Well, obviously the answer to that is no, and one factor to consider is that the universe belongs to God. He can do as he pleases, and well, 
There is no God sword in our universe. There is no God butcher. God cannot be dethroned. So if we disagree, who are we to argue with God our creator? And God created us, so it's it's not as though he owes us anything. He's not obligated to answer any of our prayers. So in, in one sense, it's, it's not our right to question God's goodness. But again, that's not a very satisfying answer, now is it? After all, what if you, like Gore, don't like what God is doing and decide Satan has a worthy cause after all? Was Satan, air quotes, right to rebel against God? And to answer this, let's examine this question. What makes God good anyway? This is the question of Euthyphro's dilemma. Is what we call good, good because God does it? Or does God do it because it is intrinsically good? Since God is supreme, he has absolute power. It wouldn't be right for us to say that there's any intrinsic good outside of him, since God is the creator of all things. So if there were some force of intrinsic good dictating God's actions, then God wouldn't truly be sovereign. In fact, whatever force is determining what good is, that is the force that would be God and not God. So then it seems like the first one is a, is a better answer. The obvious answer might be to say, good is good because God does it and we're stuck with whatever God decides is good. The problem with this is that this answer seem it seems arbitrary. It seems like God had an infinite number of options before him and and he just picked the set of things that are moral more or less randomly. The atheist Bertrand Russell put it this way: If it goodness is due to his God's fiat, then for God himself there is no difference between right and wrong. And it is no longer a significant statement to say that God is good. That quote is taken from Russell's speech, Why I Am Not a Christian. But is the solution to this to simply say, too bad? Fear not. The answer is a bit more complex than that. I explained this a bit in a previous episode. And the way I explained it was, Yes, God is absolutely sovereign, and he sets morality according to his will. He is not obligated to act by any outside force. Otherwise, that outside force would be God. Yet, it's inaccurate to say that morality is arbitrary, because God is bound by his own nature to choose what is moral. So, it's not as though God had an infinite number of options before him and... And he chose what is moral just on a whim. No, he did what was according to his own nature. So you could say, in a sense, he's bound, but not by any outside force. In fact, I later made this comment about the verse that says that God cannot lie. And I said, well, of course God is able to lie because he's omnipotent. 
I was talking to someone about this episode and, and they had an objection to this. He said, he said that he objected because, because God is the definition of truth and therefore it is impossible for him to lie. And as I pondered this, I, I said, okay, I, I see what you mean. So a better way to try to get my point across would be to, to point out God's immutability. God being the definition of truth, whatever he says, therefore, must be true, which is why God cannot lie, is that it's not a lack of omnipotence that binds him to his own nature. So a more helpful way to think about this would be to dwell on God's immut immutability, which is a fancy term for God's unchanging nature, as expressed when God declares in Malachi, I am the Lord, I change not. So, what God decides is moral is based on his unchanging nature. This is why we can count on his promises. This is why we can trust what he says. He's not, he's not going to change his mind. And this stands in stark contrast to the God who was killed by the God Butcher. The understanding that I got is that this God at, at one moment promised some eternal reward for the God Butcher and all those who worshipped him, even though it might mean suffering in his life. But this God changed his mind and said, Psych! Not the case! You're out of luck! So, with this arbitrary morality, it was more like 1984's Big Brother, where, where they decide truth based on whatever is convenient for them. Therefore, let us rejoice that God is what he is, and that there is no shadow or variation due to change. But you might wonder at this point, okay, you haven't answered the question of unanswered prayer yet. In fact, doesn't this make unanswered prayer even more problematic? God states that he is love. He promises good to those who love him. So then, how could God not want to answer our prayers? I think it was C.S. Lewis who put it best when, when he said something like, It's not that God is obligated to answer our prayers, but unanswered prayers are a problem because God so lavishly promises good to us. Is that what the one true God is like? And one way to answer this is to examine the controversial Romans 9 passage I earlier cited more closely. Notice how the passage says, Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory, for vessels of mercy. Therefore, it appears, preparing the vessels of wrath for destruction is somehow to the benefit of the vessels of mercy. How so? By making known the riches of his glory. The passage suggests, had God not prepared the vessels of wrath for destruction, he would not be maximally making known the riches of his glory. I don't know about you, but I want to see the riches of God's glory. In other words, the greatest gift God can give is himself. In fact, as insane as this sounds, and I do need to tread carefully in saying this, I want to say 
God would have been selfish not to have created the world the way that he did. Because he would be denying his elect the tremendous gift of himself. The way that God his love is by fully displaying all of his attributes most fully. That we might fully bask in his glory for eternity. So at first what appears to be selfish on God's part is actually God maximizing our joy in him. Alright, now let's get back to the movie. So let's approach the movie's epic climax. The God Butcher has kidnapped the children and successfully drawn Thor to the center of the universe. Because he needed Thor, the God Butcher needed Thor to come to him so that the Butcher might steal Thor's axe, which he intends to use to open this portal to visit this being who will grant him one wish. And it is presumed that because of the will of the sword, the God Butcher will wish to kill all of the gods. Needless to say, Thor has ample reason to stop him, and of course to rescue the children, because that's what Thor does. But as the final battle ensues, Thor does not appear to be faring well. But in steps, Jane Foster. So for those of you familiar with the Thor universe, Jane Foster is Thor's ex-girlfriend. And in this movie, they get back together. But tragically, Dr. Foster has stage 4 cancer. So earlier in the movie, and she was desperate. And according to Thor's wishes, Foster receives Thor's hammer, which had been broken in the previous Thor movie. But, but when Foster takes the hammer, it comes back together and gains Thor's powers. And she's thinking she might be healed this way. But by the time we get to the end of the movie, it's revealed that the hammer is actually killing Foster. So... During the final battle, Thor requested Foster to stay in the hospital and rest while Thor went out and fought the God Butcher. But Thor isn't doing too well, and Foster can sense this. So she decides that even though it will cost her her life, she goes to help him. She uses her powers to sacrifice herself in order to save the universe, in contrast to the god slain in the opening scene, and Zeus. And it appears that Foster's sacrifice has worked. They've successfully liberated the children, brought them home safely, and they destroyed the god butcher's sword, which is going to kill the god butcher. But when they turn to the portal in the center of the universe, they realize they are too late to stop the God Butcher from making his wish. The Butcher enters the portal, and it appears nothing will stop him from making his wish. In desperation, Thor and Foster chase after the God Butcher to stop the wish. The Butcher prepares to make his wish, and Thor tries to reason with him. As Foster is dying in his arms, he says, you do not want revenge. You want 
love. That referring to Gore's lost daughter. That's what the butcher really wanted. And then Thor says, choose love. This message, however, resonates with Gore. Keep in mind, Gore is no longer bound by the will of the sword. So he's in his right mind and he can reason. And he decides that Thor is right. So instead of wishing for the gods to be slain, Gore chooses to spend his dying minutes with his daughter who had been brought back to life. At this time, Foster dies in Thor's arms and, and Gore dies shortly thereafter. Thor ends up adopting Gore's daughter as his own and that's the end of the movie. So Thor lives, hooray, children rescued. Great movie. But what we learn from this is that when a god showed Gore compassion by suggesting that the god butcher get back what he lost and recognizing what Gore really wanted was his daughter back and to be rewarded for his piety, Gore relents of his quest to kill the gods and loves them instead. And this is like us who, in our sin, we're raging against God. We just want to overthrow him. Each one of us, like sheep, have gone astray and turned his own direction. But when God came to us and he gave us his son, he regenerates us so that when God shows us compassion, we love him because he first loved us. So this end scene was very powerful for me because... In this way, even though Thor is obviously a lowercase g god, Thor and Foster give us a picture of what the one true god is actually like, rather than the way some people imagine God to be being more like being more like Zeus, who just is doing his own thing and just wants to display his power and enjoy himself. To get back to the question about God's benevolence. Foster's sacrifice brings us back to this point. And one day I remember I was, and his thought was Jesus. And I said, okay, great Sunday school answer. You're going to have to explain that a little bit more. And he elaborated, we know of God's benevolence because he gave us Jesus. And no matter how you view no matter your view of election, we know Jesus was the propitiation for not only our sins, but the sins of the whole world, according to 1 John. Jesus' atoning death is an objective, historical demonstration of God's love towards a world that hates him. There's nothing subjective about it. It's not based on experience, but it's a once-for-all truth for all to see. And as we discussed earlier, God is far from obligated to be benevolent toward his creation. And not to mention the fact that we're the ones who sinned against him in the first place. So that's even less of a reason for God to have any kind of obligation towards us. But God is benevolent, and he demonstrated that 
by giving us his son so we can rest in that and to him be all the glory. Amen. So concerning Gore, the God Slayer, is he good or bad? Was he justified in his actions? And what can we learn from this character? And I would say something we can learn from the God Slayer is that the sorrows of those who run after another god shall be multiplied. Idols made from human hands are, like their creators, subject to change. And, and the god served by the god butcher in the beginning is subject even to death. It, it is as though when the god butcher recognized when his eternal reward was taken from him, that the God he was serving was, by his nature, not a God. And also remember, Gore killed out of self-defense. He was, he was getting strangled to death, so what was he supposed to do? Gore, therefore, doesn't really become a villain until he becomes possessed by the sword that he's taken. And then he becomes bound to slay the other gods, even though that's not really what he wants. The sword just possesses him, and, and he just wants to slay the gods just out of spite, and instead of getting his daughter back. It is only when Thor and Foster destroy the sword that they're able to get Gore to come to his senses. And... The parallel to this in the real world is that Satan is nothing if not op opportunistic. He knows that if he can get us to serve a false god or believe lies about the one true god, which might possibly be his preferred method, but I can't say for sure, that false conception of God will inevitably fail us. And this is when Satan strikes. This is when he embitters the soul against the one true God, and that soul is bound to self-destructive sin. Now, don't get me wrong. We're definitely responsible for our sins. We're responsible for suppressing the truth and making idols as laid out in Romans 1. But as we see later in Romans 1, idolatry inevitably leads to worse and worse sin until the soul is fully ensnared. So, in a sense, you could say that that the God Butcher was evil. The God Butcher was responsible for his actions in one, in one sense. But we must also recognize that he was in bondage to the real villains of the film. The God who refused Gore his eternal reward and frankly deserved to die. And the sword. And to put that together... I would say the God Slayer, therefore, is an archetype of an idol, and the sword is an archetype of Satan, or maybe another way to think of it is the sword is an archetype of the power of sin. Again, I would make the analogy of the one ring of power. But when we see a God who, unlike the aloof Zeus, or, or the God who, who took away Gore's eternal reward, demonstrates self-sacrifice to demonstrate love just as the one true God gave us his only begotten son. Gore responds with love and spares the gods because he was delivered from the oppressive power 
of the sword. And to come to love the gods and and get his wish granted for his daughter to come back. So that's that's my analysis of, of Gore the God Slayer. In other words, like many well-crafted villains, the God Butcher is not pure evil. But rather, he's he's just like the rest of us. He was just a lost man in need of a savior. And finally, what better way to end this episode than by addressing the first end credits scene? So, consider this the end credits scene of this podcast episode. So, we get to the end credits scene of the movie. And during the film, when, when Thor went to Zeus and pled for help, Zeus humiliates him, but... Thor and his compatriots are able to plot, they're able to steal Zeus's lightning bolt and strike him with it. And at this point, we think Zor we think Thor, rather, has killed Zeus. But the end credit scene takes us back to this to the omnipotent city, and we see that Zeus is alive. Thor only managed to wound him, but Zeus is angry. He's mad. He can't believe that this little Thor would dare to have wounded him. And more generally, he is lamenting the respect and fear that the gods used to enjoy. He, I don't remember the exact quote, but he says something along the lines of, People used to fear us and respect us, and we had so much power. But the people of that time now only thought of the gods as novelties, as helpers. Like how Thor helps those in battle who need him. But Zeus vows to gain back the fear of the people. So he summons his son Hercules to do his bidding. And I'm really excited for that movie. Not only will this be an epic battle between Thor and Zeus, but... It also looks like it will have many rich theological themes. Even from that scene there, that made me think. We live in an era where we view God as personal. And he is personal. And praise God that he is personal. That is very important for us to remember. But people today, even Christians today really don't like to talk about the fear of God. We don't, we shrink from, from having that kind of reverent fear that, that puts a sober-mindedness into us. We emphasize God as personal, but we tend to forget about God as almighty and majestic. We, and I'll admit, I naturally shrink at the idea of God's wrath and holiness. So, in a way, I can understand Zeus's lament that he's this powerful being that he feels like people are just using him for their own gain. So yeah, I, I'm sure this will have a lot of great theological themes in there, and I'm really excited for this movie to come out and if, Lord willing, the podcast is still going on, I will have to do an episode on this. 